What's up, everybody? Nate Lurie back with more of We're the Inspiration. With some dark humor and brutal honesty, we're exploring the absurdity and the normalcy of living with disabilities. Stories are told on this show. Everyone's is different. One by one, we're going to tell as many as we can while bringing you the most entertaining podcast about disabilities you'll ever hear. On this week's show, I have an old friend of mine. He's a Paralympian, and despite that not being in basketball, he was my very first wheelchair basketball coach. <laughs> I know him as Cisco, but Cordell Jeter, thank you for being the inspiration for this week's show. Hey, thank you for having me on. I greatly appreciate it, Nate. It's great seeing you again. Uh, it's great seeing you, too. It's been a long time. Man. <laughs> yeah, so decades. many reconnections on this show. It's crazy. <laughs> yeah. I think it's great. But I guess that's what you do during a worldwide pandemic, you know. Silver lining. Yeah. Although you just had your second COVID shot. Yep. I, I made it through uh, unscathed, I would like to say. I would say very minor side effects, nothing even to vent about. So I'm just happy to have it done. So when it comes to disabled people, there are people that are born with them, like me. Mm-hmm. And then there are people that sort of get disabled along the way. And if I'm not mistaken, you were the latter. That's correct. I acquired my disability through auto accident in 1988, my second year of college football. No drinking, no drugs or anything of that nature. It was just a freak single car accident where my friend and teammate at the time drove off the side of a mountain, ultimately uh, ended up paralyzing me from the waist down. Oof. Off a mountain? Yep. We were very fortunate. Everybody lived. The driver uh, lost a few uh, feet of his intestines, some internal damage. His girlfriend shattered her right pelvic bone. She walks with a very severe limp, like with a cane full time. And the guy in the back seat got 13 stitches was walking around the, the emergency room with a slight concussion. It was just pure luck of the draw. The car rolled a half dozen times, they think. And ultimately, everybody got ejected and I got caught by the car. So I'm a T12 paraplegic of 32 years. Wow. Still rocking it. <laughs> yeah. Not dwelling on it at all. No, by no, no means. Way. No means, man. Yeah, absolutely. It's just a new adventure. Fast forwarding a little bit. How were you introduced to wheelchair sports? I don't mean the ones that I did, but how were you introduced in to sports in general? So after my accident, I spent about five weeks at the National Rehab Hospital And while in the hospital, they were talking about different athletic activities you can do in a wheelchair, wheelchair basketball, wheelchair tennis, and things of that nature. And what was interesting is all the things that they wanted to introduce me to, I didn't really care for before my accident. I wasn't a basketball player. I was a wrestler. I wasn't a tennis player. I was a lacrosse player. Fortunately for me, on the way home after my discharge from the hospital, I came across the Marine Corps Marathon. As we were driving home, I saw some wheelchair racers competing. And I sat there and thought to myself, I said, you know, that's pretty cool. It's something I can do every day on my own. I don't have to have a team. I can compete against myself in time, get stronger. And of course, I was 20 at the time. So I sat there and really thought about, you know, I can do 5Ks and 10Ks on the weekends, drink some beers afterward and meet some (laughs) girls. So uh, it was all around bonus for me. So uh, it it was really a part of my integration back into community life. You know, getting back out there was wheelchair racing. Once you got the idea to do the racing, were you trained? Did you just train by yourself or... 
Well, I started off by myself. Of course, you have to order the special equipment. Wheelchair racing chair is much different than our everyday chairs. So I had to get fitted and ordered a custom racing chair. Fortunately for me, I started training on my own, but I hooked up with a college buddy named Maurice Williams. He and I really just started training together. He would get on his bike. I'd get on my chair. We started off on the track, found out how exhausting it was really to push a racing chair until... <laughs> You know, like anything else, you start building up strength and endurance and start making on the road. And, you know, one small hill leads to a bigger hill, which leads to being able to complete a marathon if you stick with it. If you're used to, let's say, one activity, it doesn't even have to be a sport. But when no. you take on a new one, it just works those different muscles. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, absolutely. The learning curve is always interesting, isn't it? You know, yeah. people always, when they start something new, they go, oh, I, I'm terrible at this. I suck at this. I'm horrible. Well, of course, it's your first time doing it. <laughs> Everybody's terrible when you start off. You know what I mean? That's what it's supposed to be. If Quit you're saying good, you're terrible. If, you're supposed to be terrible. If you're you know? good at something the first time, you're very lucky. Yeah, <laughs> uh, that is very atypical. Exactly. You know, change is always difficult and new activities, new learning skills, and so forth. You, know, you just have to stick with it. And talk about sticking with it. You put in the work, and I can even see it behind you. Nobody else can, but you got that Barcelona 1992 thing behind oh, you there. Personal bragging rights poster, medals, yeah, you know, you get, you get it. <laughs> so Flash the brass. Walk me through the process of not only being in the Paralympics, but getting there. It takes focus, dedication, and persistence. And uh, that was the goal. I, when I completed the Marine Corps Marathon a year after my accident, I was introduced to the Paralympics actually by a journalist. He asked me, was I going to try to compete in the Paralympics? And quite frankly, at the time, I didn't even know what the Paralympics were. So he introduced me to this new international level of competitive sports that's really how i got started was by that initial introduction somebody asked me you know what are you going to do next are you going to compete in the paralympics and i basically said yes and that became my next goal and focus and like anything else you really have to see what you have to do to get done what sport you like what is the ultimate goal of that sport the speed or the record then start breaking it down you know if the record is whatever it might be one minute and it takes you two minutes, well, then you've got to start working to break your two minutes all the way down to one minute. That takes time and effort and training, diet and exercise, weight training, cross training with swimming and hand cycling. I mean, true dedication to quote unquote, perfect your craft, like anything else, you know, a new sport or new activity. When you start off, you're not very good. But if you stick with it and focus on it on a daily basis for years, you can be one of the best in the world at anything if you take that time, effort, and focus. And 1992, you were one of the best in the world. I did it. I was very fortunate. I did it. Came out on top. Uh, bronze, gold, and set a world record. In which race? Uh, the 4 by 400 and the 800. Oh, wow. Yeah. It was a good week. <laughs> <laughs> Have you kept up with the Paralympics since then? 
I follow it. You know, it's interesting. I think I find myself liking the winter sports more than I do the summer sports now. Something about that downhill skiing has just got me. So I do like following it when it gets down to the very end or the finals. Now mm-hmm. that they're finally putting it on TV. Well, as a Paralympian at one time, how does it make you feel to know that it's getting more coverage now? I think it's great because all it does is just bring awareness. Everybody has their own levels, their own worlds. We're out there doing this and we're just looking for recognition like anybody else. We don't have to necessarily be prime time, but people need to know what we're doing and what efforts that we're putting forth. So I think it's outstanding that we're getting recognition as well as women's sports are getting recognition, things of that nature. I think anything that is truly on a competitive international level should receive some type of coverage. People putting forth that type of time, effort, money, and dedication into a specific feat, uh, especially for their own country. I think it's great. I agree. (laughs) (laughs) Not to fast forward past the Paralympics, but at some point after that, as I said in the intro, you went from Paralympian and track to not just a wheelchair basketball coach, but mine. Yep. So how do you go from that level of track to becoming a basketball coach? Quite frankly, as you know, by our record, um, I was a terrible coach. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get into that. <laughs> there, I but have some memories fun. of that. We had fun. We had a lot uh, of fun. The way it really started off was Gary Logue from Fairfax County Therapeutic Recreation called me up after the Paralympics and asked, would I come out and speak to your program, a therapeutic recreational activity program? And so I just came out to speak to you guys and talk about the Paralympics and competitive sports and things of that nature. I asked Gary, you know, what you guys do? And he just talked about different activities, maybe some bowling or some try to do some tennis, but there wasn't any formatted activity for competitive sports, even locally or regionally. I asked him why that wasn't the case. He said, well, you know, we've got nobody to do that. Basically, he said, why don't you do it? I'll pay you. I kind of took it as a joke. I said, man, I'll do it. Why not? And He was serious, and we literally met that afternoon and kind of drew it up of uh, seasonal competitive sports, you know, with outdoor racing and track to indoor basketball to tennis, whatever it might be, that we did on on a seasonal basis. You know, uh, we even got into uh, some skiing. So Mm -hmm. it was really an introduction to all around competitive sports and then really what the program has done now blossom into the Fairfax Falcons has really been kind of mind boggling. It's crazy. It really is. I mean, when I first started off, it was seven of you guys, seven kids in this little room, you know, Hey, you guys are all still wearing seatbelts in your wheelchairs. You know what I mean? It was, (laughs) (laughs) it was great, you know? So uh, if I had a seatbelt at that time, I haven't had one since. (laughs) (laughs) It's crazy. So it really is awesome to see what that program has blossomed into. And to know that I was there from the beginning really does make me feel kind of proud. You actually just reminded me of something I learned the hard way, which was I've talked on the show before about how I've said of the team a long time ago that you're not really a member until you fall out of your chair. 
So that's right. So what I remember about that is, again, I don't remember if I had a seatbelt, but I think I did when the program started. And I learned the yep. hard way that if you fall with a seatbelt on, your chair is going to go yep. with you. That's right. Comes right there with you. <laughs> yep. Makes things difficult. That's right. <laughs> that was a huge thing with the parents back then, because what would happen is you, you kids would fall. You know, of course, I mean, we're playing basketball and contact sports. And so your kids would fall and the parents would run out onto the court and put you guys back in your chair. I'm like, what are you doing? You can't be running out onto the court, picking your kid up. Your kid's got to get back in the chair by themselves. And, you know, so that also turned into, I don't know if you remember the daily activities of we started learning how to fall out of our chairs and get back in our chairs and picking up the balls off the ground, you know, oh, really starting off with the very basics, just the bare minimum basics. It was absolutely hilarious. I loved every minute of it. But knowing what I know now about <laughs> how much you knew about basketball when you started coaching, us, which was nothing, well, nothing, exa nothing. exactly. But <laughs> were you learning the bare minimum with us or did you? Yeah, yes. Okay. I was so much not a basketball player or a coach that when we first got started, I kid you not, I had to learn the names of all the positions to make sure I was stating what the positions were correctly. Mm -hmm. That's how bad it was. At the time and the age you guys were at, you know, we were just looking at the bare minimum of skills, learning to dribble, learning to pick the ball up off the ground, bounce passing. It wasn't like I really had to have some intimate knowledge. I mean, we were dealing with the ankle biter level of sports, you know, at the time. So it was a pretty good match. Yeah, I mean, we were just starting out. I don't know that we realized you were too, because, <laughs> you know, here comes this guy who's been to the Paralympics. And I don't think I realized until adulthood, or really even when I was setting this show up with you, that hey, you know, he might have been good at track or great at track, <laughs> but he might have known nothing about basketball. The scores of our games didn't clue you in? <laughs> I don't know if you know this, but I've talked about that on the show before. I distinctly remember going to our first tournament, which was in Baltimore. It's the only one that I knew about. I don't know about you. Yep, Bennett Institute. Bennett Institute, yeah. And... The score of our very first game was 24 to 4. <laughs> I remember that vividly. <laughs> Here's the other thing I remember, though, and I haven't said this. Yeah. <laughs> so at that time, there was an older team and a younger team, right? Uh -huh. And I forget the cutoff. I think it was like. 14 or something sure, and, sure. Something and then like that, yeah. and then you're on the older team or whatever so i was on both teams it was my last year on the younger team yeah and we were getting slaughtered on the <laughs> older age division yeah the rules stated in the younger age division that the basket was lower which didn't mm -hmm. matter for me right that's right yes but that's right but for some it would have and that gave someone like me an advantage, right? So on the younger team, there were whole teams that were, you know, trying to get the ball from me or whatever. Yeah. And I remember ultimately winning that division that year. But our first game 
in the younger division. We won it after being slaughtered in the older division so badly yeah, yeah, that yeah. I, after the game, I just looked at you and I had this ecstatic look on my face and you, you were on the sideline just cracking up. It <laughs> <laughs> was so much fun watching you guys, man. I, it was, I, it was just a blast. It really was. You know, looking back like anything else, you know, I would have done so much more, so much differently, you know, but I'm glad I did. We had the opportunity to do what we did together. It was a great experience. <laughs> Speaking of doing things together. Now, you already yeah. mentioned this name, Maurice Williams. Yes. This was a man that we knew as Mo. That's right. But you brought him into the wheelchair sports program. That's right. He's my boy. He's still your boy. That's right. That's right. That, that's great to hear, man. I, uh, in fact, I attended, I virtually attended his wedding not uh, too long ago. He, he oh, just got married. Man. Yep. That's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's doing really well. He's down here in Florida, too. So yeah, I will reach out to him, let him know that we talked about him. Yeah, definitely. I mean, Mo was a really nice. I mean, you two were like hulking dudes. You know, you're in a wheelchair. He's not. But he's this big hulking dude. He was really the only one that made me look small. You know, I was, you know, somebody that yeah, worked you had some out broad too. shoulders. Yeah, right. you had broad shoulders. Yeah. Right. I look big compared to all the kids, but, you mm -hmm. know, he made me look tiny. But he was the nicest guy you could ever meet. Yeah. And yeah. basically, I mean, I kept tabs on you a little bit when you stopped coaching, but it yep. was like he dropped off the face of the earth. Yeah. He moved down to Florida like anything else job, wife, kids, and, moved on with life you know we we're in our 20s at that time you know if you think about it so it started off as a, a little fun summer job that turned into a, a year-round full-time employer you know with this program so we did it for a number of years it was a blast while we did it and then i think evan braff came in after me and just took it to a whole new level which was really awesome going back to mo just a little bit oh yeah I mean, did you bring him in just because you were friends, or did he know stuff about basketball that you didn't? Nope, just like me. Brought him in because we were friends. Hey, I got this program going, and, uh, you know, this is what I'm doing. And he just loved coaching with me with wheelchair racing and thought this would be another opportunity. And, of course, after day one, you see how much fun we have at the program. So after day one, he was hooked like anybody else. You know what I mean? This is a blast. You know, <laughs> what, what are we doing next weekend? I think that was one of the highlights of his 20s as well, because we do talk about that when we do hang out or when we do connect, I should say. Everyone connects in that way these days. That's, right? it. That's <laughs> it. That's it. Now, when you yeah. did leave the team, I don't remember when it was exactly, but yep. was that your decision or did Evan want to take over? Well, both. Evan wanted to take over and, you know, I'm trying to move on. I started a durable medical equipment company and other things and opportunities, you know, therapeutic recreation coaching kids wheelchair sports program was literally just a fluke opportunity that I took on, but working for Fairfax County full-time wasn't what I wanted to do. I had other things that I wanted to do as well. And then Evan understood basketball. Evan understood some of the other regional players and so forth and was able to really turn the program into what it is today, Fairfax Falcons. Yeah. He was really the start of what it became. You know, yeah, and, the boom, yeah. And I think, and other people have said this too, what really made it easy to expand is social media. 
of course, like anything else, it takes on a whole new light. You know, with the internet, you can't help it. You know, boom. We were uh, still printing things out on flyers. Here, take this home. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going backwards a little bit, but I'm trying to remember if we started doing track units on the team while you were part of it. Yeah. You did? Yeah. Okay. We raised money and were able to get like 10 chairs or something from Hall's Wheels. So he really hooked us up with a great deal to help us out to supply enough chairs for everybody on the team. Yeah. They were great chairs, but you know. Yeah. Like anything else, they were great at the time. And right. then, you know, three years later, you know, the new models come along, the new models come along, you know, that now they're obsolete, of course, but yeah, at I the never, time they were top of the line. I never got heavy into track, partly because I never felt like I had a chair that worked well for me. Yeah. 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 I remember working with you. You never got comfortable in your seating of the push and the rhythm. I never got comfortable with the seating. I don't really feel like I had a hold on the compensator. There were probably a lot of reasons for it. I was more of a field event guy, but yeah. how did it feel? It was a long transition, but how did it feel when you were able to transition from being a Paralympian in track to being a coach in it for kids? At the time, it was just a lot of fun. You know, hindsight's twenty twenty. I didn't think about the impact I could potentially have on the kids. I was just having fun as a 20-year-old young man watching these kids play sports, just like watching kids at ankle biter football or anything else, you know, yeah. watching guys learning to pick up a basketball or bounce pass or first time making a shot or things of that nature. I was just having fun. I really didn't put two and two together as far as the impact it really could have until, you know, of course, in my late forties or so looking back, seeing what you guys have become, seeing what the program has become, then you go, man, you know, like I said, you know, hindsight being 2020, man, I could have done this or I could have done that. Now that I understand like anything else it takes two lifetimes to get anything right, if that makes any sense. And, oh, and this sure. is why. So I'm happy I did what we did. And a part of that is we're still talking about it today. So we must have done something right. Two plus decades later, we're still discussing it and the program's still moving forward. So maybe we could have done more to it, but I think we did just enough to keep the sustainability, if not tremendous growth from where we started. Again, hindsight being what it is. I, yep. I feel like everybody that was within that program and sort of left it at a certain point, feels like they probably could have done more. I know I did. Sure. I don't even know if you know that I was a coach at one point. Yeah. So I feel what you said about not really absorbing until later the fact that maybe I could have been a role model for these kids. Like I was right. I That's was just having it. fun coaching them, you know. That's it. That's yeah. it. You got it. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Like, ah, yeah. I had a shot. I had a shot, you know, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think I might have gotten it, you know, while I was still coaching, but it didn't hit me at first just because I pretty much went straight from player to coach. And yeah. that was such a weird transition Yeah. as far as like, I was one of the boys and now I'm not. Now you're taught them what to do. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Some people have some say as to when their episodes come out and you wanted yours out at the beginning of June. So tell everybody why. I have created my own track chair called Eco Rovers, all-terrain track chair, with the sole purpose of creating greater access to the masses. We've seen what some of the 
deficits or downfalls of current technologies on the market, and we've worked to overcome that. What we're doing now is bridging the gap between the high cost of technology and access to the consumer. So what we're doing is cutting out the middleman. We're going to call our technology EcoRover, an all-terrain tractor that allows people with physical disabilities, independent mobility over rough terrain, such as deep sandy beaches or our state parks. And my sole purpose, my singularity of focus is to create greater access. And I'm going to do that by driving the cost down to this technology. So when your audience gets a chance, tell them, take a look at Eco Rover Chairs, www.ecoroverchairs.com. Oh, we'll put a link to that, definitely. But, <laughs> you know, yeah. these, these types of chairs, like you said, they're all terrain. And I've seen these chairs. I saw you in one. Uh, yes. Not an Eco Rover because they didn't exist yet. But That's I, correct. Uh, I saw maybe three years ago, you in one of these chairs. And basically, it's a motorized chair, but instead of tires, it kind of has... has rubber tank-like tracks. Right, right. You know, so it almost works like a tank or even a skid steer. Some people might know what a skid steer might look like in construction. It works on tracks, so it literally rolls over itself versus a tire trying to traverse some type of terrain. This track has the ability to roll over itself, basically. And that's what makes it so versatile over uneven or rough terrain. We're reducing the cost by going straight to the consumer, cutting out the middleman. These chairs are so simple, easy, and intuitive to use that there really is no need to have those additional costs put in between us. We can drop ship right to the consumer. They can unbox it. They hit the power button and drive it right off the pallet and be ready to go. Very simplistic. The chair only goes three and a half miles per hour. You know, instead of $13,000, $14,000, which these chairs are running now, we're coming out with a price of $79.95. So less than $8,000 comparison to $14,000, you'll have full access to outdoor mobility. And I know people are going to appreciate that, some of them, because... $14,000, that's more than a car. Sometimes. It is. It's really upsetting. It's really depressing. I get a lot of calls from parents who just don't understand, you know, how I or we can do this to their kids and so forth. It's upsetting. So I've seen this as a serious barrier to entrance is the cost. Secondary to that, besides cost is access. So even if you purchase one, how do you transport it if you don't have that type of vehicle? So it is our belief that this technology should already be located where it's inherently needed. Our commercialized beaches, state parks, and national monuments, just like scooters are located every Walmart and grocery store ready for use. Somebody should be able to go to a commercialized beach, head to the kiosk, hand them a license, sign a waiver, transfer on over to an Eco Rover chair, go enjoy themselves independently at the beach or with family and friends, and they come back a few hours later, get their license and talk about the adventures of the day versus feeling like the challenge of the day or the burden of the day or not even going to the beach because you don't think there's any type of access for you in general. We believe that if we continue to drive this cost down, that state and county municipalities will be able to purchase them in multiples versus onesie twosies. 
we can get the price down to 7,000, then they'll say, you know what, maybe we'll take 10. And that's what we're looking for. We're looking to bridge that gap between the cost of technology and access. You use the beach as an example. And for anybody that is in a wheelchair and, as you said, thinks they can't enjoy the beach or hasn't even tried to, first of all, wet sand and wheelchairs don't mix. So No, not at all. No. So, you know, that's problem number one when you go to the beach. But the only access that I've experienced at a beach that doesn't have a boardwalk or something like that mm-hmm. is one of these chairs that you can't possibly push yourself because right. the wheels are too big for your hands. That's been the only way that the wheels can traverse through the sand. Correct. And with these tank-like wheels, obviously I haven't seen it in sand, but I imagine not only is it easier or as easy to use as one of those chairs that somebody else has to push, but it gives you a sense of independence. It's true independence. You sit down with a joystick, with a few flicks of your fingers, you're moving at almost four miles per hour over top the sand effortlessly. You know, you can literally carry the cooler on your lap and traverse with your family and friends and carry on a conversation and right in the water, right on the edge of the water in the wet sand, you know, see the sights and the sounds and the smells and understand what it's like to be out there and listen to those waves crash, hunt for shark's teeth or just people watch. I mean, it's just amazing the diversity of people that are out there and the peacefulness of the birds and the Sky and the sights and the smells. It's just nature. It's why people go there. You not having that experience to me is, <laughs> I don't want to say criminal, but it's not right. It's what drives me because you should have that experience that people pay big money to fly around the world to come to some of these beaches and some other people just take it for granted and you have zero access to that. And it's just not right, especially when the technology is readily available. So if the technology is here, then it's just a matter of how we get access to the people from the technology. And that's what Eco River is about, creating access to the technology. And again, it's not just sand. It's all terrain like grass and gravel. Mulch, gravel, mud, snow, trails through the woods. I mean, absolutely is truly all terrain. I hadn't thought about snow. When it snows, I don't go out at all. That's a good point. That's exactly right. Yeah. We have assimilated to our natural barriers. An eco rover is a tool, kind of like an impact hammer. It is a tool that allows you to overcome those obstacles or barriers. And that's all it is, just like our regular wheelchair. Our wheelchair allows us to be independently mobile on level or flat or smooth terrain. Eco Rover takes that same independence and capability, but for off path. So now you can go garden. You can get around your yard. You can go to your friends and family's kids' soccer games. You can go to the beach. You can go to the park. You can hang out with your friends. Do the things that people naturally take for granted because now you have this tool that gives you that type of independence and access 
over areas that you thought were, you know, impossible to traverse. Go back to the times that you were coaching me, like almost 30 years ago at this point. Yeah. Now, I saw you at that time as someone who could pretty much handle anything as far as terrain. And maybe that wasn't true. I don't know. But how did you come up with this idea in terms of were you thinking of other people or is this something that you felt you needed for yourself? No, it's something I felt I need with myself. And quite frankly, I was really kind of like you, Nate, when friends and family actually did a fundraiser for me and gifted me my first all-terrain track chair. And when I drove across my grass and back into the woods, it was surreal. I'd forgotten how easy it was to traverse across grass or go into the woods because it had been almost 25 years at the time since I'd done it. When I saw that, you know, this technology was out there and available, I started thinking about the kids in my program, remembering you back in the days, thinking, you know, this is something that you guys should have access to. I started thinking about all of our wounded veterans. I owned a durable medical equipment company and dealt with a lot of wounded veterans, men and women coming back from war, that war has destroyed their bodies and limited their mobilities and thinking this is another tool for them to get out for independent access, as well as our seniors, our elderly. I'm down here in Florida, the retirement capital of the world. And you have all these seniors that have limited mobility and their beaches all around and they can't get out onto the beaches. And it became this drumbeat of, hey, this technology needs to be readily available. I went to the company that manufactures this chair and expressed my desire to create a statewide rental programs and told them what my desires were, how to create access. I was just told flat out, it did not meet their business model. And the reason being is a lot of their charities and foundations don't pressure them to reduce costs. Charities and foundations raise their money from the public. They purchase chairs from the manufacturer. The manufacturer delivers the chair. The individual gets the chair as a donation. They sing the praises about that chair. The charity or foundation raises more money buys more chairs from the manufacturers. There isn't any financial incentive from anybody to reduce cost. In fact, costs have gone up every year for the last six years. Sometimes twice in one year, prices go up because nobody's complaining. The business model they have works for them, but it doesn't work for the public, for people like me and you. And so I'm going to change that business model where I'm going to drive cost into the ground. Every time I can save the consumer $200, I'm going to reduce the cost of our Eco Rover by that $200 and continue to keep this cost down to just bare minimum sustainability. And I think that's really the way to create greater access is by reducing cost, reducing that financial barrier to access. And if we continue to drive down costs, then counties and state municipalities will turn around and see it as a feasible option to provide to the community as access. They are investing in those balloon style chairs that we talked about. They're investing in MobiBat. They realize access is key to what we need to do for our citizens. The Eco Rover is the next logical step for true independent mobility and access. 
versus having to be pushed on that chair or limited to a few hundred feet of mat out of an entire beach. That is our singularity of focus is access. And we're going to do that by driving down cost. Speaking of cost, though, I know that as a wheelchair user myself, I'm able to have my insurance company pay the bulk of new wheelchairs. I think now it's every five years. That's so, and, and I bring that up because that is a way to bring costs down. So is it the same for the Eco Rover? Can this be paid for in part through insurance? Unfortunately, not. And the reason being is insurances and Medicare, Medicaid all follow Medicare guidelines. And Medicare really focuses on getting you the individual from their bed to the bathroom, to the kitchen, and back to bed. They do not care about outside mobility. They'll even tell you that USPS will deliver mail to your door. Meals and Wheels will bring food to your door. They can send out a vehicle to pick you up to get you to your doctor's appointment. So outdoor mobility is not covered through any type of Medicare and most private insurance. It's not saying that an individual private insurance would not take a chance at it, but I have not seen one go through yet. They typically follow Medicare guidelines. And I know a lot of people are going to be disappointed that your answer to that was no, but it's important for them to know that because if they want one of these chairs, then it's important for them to know, okay, insurance is not going to bump the cost down, but you're going to work with them every step of the way that you can to do that on your own. Absolutely. So we do have financing opportunities directly available for individuals who wish to purchase Eco Rovers directly. Absolutely. So they can reach out. Just go to ecoroverchairs.com. Look for the link for your state. We'll put you in contact with a financing agency. So how I like to end these things, I ask one of two questions. And I actually think I could ask you both of them, although you might have already answered one. Okay. See, you are someone who, as we said, got injured later in life, even though you're only 20 years old. But I feel like you've already given an example of a misconception that you had about the disabled community before you were part of it. Yes. Yeah. So that question's already been answered. So here's the other question. Since we're called, we're the inspiration, making fun of the fact that disabled people are called inspirations out of thin air. Yeah. Now, you must have been called one being a Paralympian. I'm, oh, my gosh. I, man, I, I, the I word that. is, like, painful. It, it's like kryptonite, right? Yeah, it is. It is. <laughs> so, toss the Paralympics aside for a second. Give me a really ridiculous example of someone you didn't know calling you an inspiration. Oh. I can tell you one. <laughs> and it's so basic because it happens more than once. Mm-hmm. Just living your life, doing the basic things that people do, grocery shopping, pushing my own shopping cart in Walmart, loading my own groceries, cereal, bread, milk, whatever it might be. And somebody stops and says, you are just so amazing. You're just so inspirational to me. Thank you. God bless you. I'll pray for it. You know what I mean? It's just like, holy crap, Amanga. And it probably happens, you know, <laughs> once a month or maybe more, you know what I mean? Depending on 
where you are and how often you're out, but it happens, you know, mm-hmm. and all you're doing is grocery shopping. <laughs> and in that story, you completely understand why I started this podcast. Yeah, yep, <laughs> it is. It, it is. I, I like the way you said, you know, it, it's kryptonite because that's exactly right. Like, ah, oh, God, it's so painful. You know, like I'm just trying to live my life like you. Like, don't even think about it. Don't think about it till somebody says something about it, you know. Somebody pointed out on a previous show, even the word inspiration is usually wrong. Because, like, like if you're called an inspiration for being a Paralympian, I get that. Because you might be inspiring someone to do something, right? But if you're just being called an inspiration for going to Walmart by yourself... What are you inspiring anybody to do? I, you know, <laughs> that's the way it is, though. You're exactly right. What I realize is everybody's in their own world. Yeah. And, you know, having a disability, I've got a neighbor who recently acquired a disability, and she never thought about it until, of course, she acquired a disability. Even though we're out across the street all this time, she's like, I never knew stores are like this. I never knew parking was like this. I never knew people would treat you like this. I go in the store in a wheelchair and somebody talk to me like I'm a little kid. People literally treat me different. You know, I'm like, mm-hmm. yeah, that's the way it is. You know what I mean? And that's our world. And that's what we deal with. It really is a community of understanding that other people don't. It's so weird. And this just came to me. It's like people are coddling us for acting like we don't need to be coddled too. It's so weird. That's pretty good. That's a pretty good way of putting it. You're yeah. exactly right. They coddle you to say that you don't need coddling. It's yeah. what makes it so it's, weird. <laughs> yeah, that's very good description. As I was editing this episode, I realized I'm doing this podcast for the same reason my old friend Cordell is selling those chairs. We both saw a way that we could help the disabled community. I want to thank him for being the inspiration for this week's show and thank everyone for listening. Links to our Twitter, Facebook, and Discord server will be in the description when I put the show up, as will a link to Cordell's website. Until next week, this is Nate Lurie saying you don't always have to do a lot to inspire others.